Hi, everybody. Thanks for worshiping online with us at all of our different sites. And I haven't seen you since last year. So it's great to see you and be together for what I think is going to be amazing in a great year. I'm going to do two things today. Um, I'm going to open up and introduce to you the book of Nehemiah that will take us to Easter. I'm so excited about this study. You will find it life transforming. And then I want to reveal to you the word of 20. 23. Does it feel weird to even say that? 2023. As uh, I often do in January, I choose a word for the year ahead and we sprinkle it in throughout the course of the year and a text to go along with it. Last year was Shema, the Hebrew word to listen, to hear, chosen, because I just think as a people we needed to do a better job listening to where God is leading us. The word for the year this year I'm very excited about and the word is confidence. <laughs> and it's not confidence in self, it's confidence in God, because confidence in self falters. Confidence in God brings freedom and strength. And it's not self-esteem, it's Christ-esteem. That's where we're gonna go this year. And the text that I have to support this, that I'm encouraging you to memorize, to learn, put in your head and your heart, is Hebrews 4:16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Does anybody in the room have at least one need in your life that you would like God to help meet in your personal journey? Raise your hand. You are such a wise people. We all have huge needs, and we've been given this invitation to approach God's throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It's not a throne of wrath. It's not a throne of intimidation. When you think about meeting with a king, you tend to be distant rather than close. And he says, no, approach God's throne of grace with confidence because you will receive mercy. He knows who we are, our shortcomings, our failings, our sin. And he's gonna provide mercy no matter where we are in our journey. And he's going to help us find grace to help us meet our needs in our journey. Now that's a great verse, wouldn't you agree? So I'm gonna encourage you to memorize it, put it in heart and mind to help you. We've given, um, when you got in, in your seats today, there were magnets and there were also the, uh, the stickers that are there. You can plaster that somewhere in your house, your car, and it's got the verse on there. Memorize it, put it there, because we're praying that God would lead us to that given end. In fact, would you recite together with me Hebrews 4.16? We'll put it up again here for you. Join me. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So let's pray to that given end and we'll jump into Nehemiah. Father God, thank you for sitting on a throne of grace. We need that long for it. We need the mercy that you extend to us all and we need your grace and favor that helps to meet the needs of our life. They're so significant. May 2023 be a year, Lord, when we come in December of this year to say we have grown in confidence and we have seen the outcome in our lives because of our confidence in you, not in self. We ask you to help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Good, well, let's jump into Nehemiah. I brought with me a door hinge, actually a hinge from one of my doors. So I have a hinge store right now at home. And the door hinge is a reminder, it's a hinge, it swings, that doors usually are on hinges, so I'm thinking about this as a metaphor of life, that my life is like a door that swings on a hinge. And it begs this question for me, because I can't help but wonder 
with the massive upheaval in the world, are we living on the hinge of history? With the cultural convulsion that's taking place in our own nation, with the personal weight that's been added to so many families over the last several years, I just wonder, are we living on the hinge of history? And I suppose there's a global dimension to it because if you read articles that are being printed today and the books that are being published today, many people believe we're living in the end of times, that Jesus is about to return. So it's got a global dimension. But I'm most interested in the personal dimension. That is, in your personal life, are you personally living on the hinge of history? Is there a huge challenge that you're facing in 2023? Is there a significant decision that you have to make in 2023? Is there a problem you have to solve in 2023? Or even is there, on the upside, a phenomenal opportunity that's waiting for you in 2023, and the door of your life is hinging, not certain which direction it will go? Well, I think we're living in this time where we are going to get clarity through Nehemiah concerning the direction that is ours. This year, personally, I've, I've made, I always make some resolutions for a new year. One of my resolutions is to raise the ante, to be deliberate about saying thank you to people who have been mentors, who've invested in my life, particularly in my earlier years because I'm in awe of how God has worked through oftentimes people and circumstances. We traveled at uh, Christmas time to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where my sisters live. It's such a beautiful tropical climate. I would recommend this travel for you. <laughs> Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I love the town, and um, my sisters are living there, so I went and spent some time, but I, I took some time out to connect with a mentor of mine, Shirley Hale, who's still living, and she and her husband, Art, were very influential in my journey, friend, or parents to a dear friend of mine when I was 18. She is now 96, living in her own home, conducting Bible studies online, FaceTime. <laughs> I was impressed. I was really impressed. And we, we spent a couple of hours together. It was so beautiful. I thanked her for three things. I just said, Shirley, thank you for showing me what it means to follow Jesus with your all. I had one half foot in and another half foot out. And it was the influence of Art and Shirley that said, throw yourself at the foot of Jesus Christ with your life. That's where I came up with that phrase, take your hand off the steering wheel of your life, slide over and let the Lord lead your life. That happened because of that influence. I thanked her for teaching me the power of prayer because they were prayer warriors and they prayed all the time. In fact, I, I said to her, do you remember, I looked her in the eyes, do you remember that time I was making my first trip alone driving from Sioux Falls to Minneapolis, it was inclement weather, and, they, and both of you said, I wanna, we wanna pray for you. I said, fine, and they said, we wanna go outside. They lived on a very busy street, and I thought, okay. So we went outside, they put one hand on my car and one hand on me, and they prayed over me. And I walked away as the cars were rushing by, wondering what people are thinking. <laughs> and I thought, thank you, God. It was so symbolic. Joel, pray for the little things and the big things of life, for all things. And I said, thank you for teaching me to trust God with my future. I'm 18, I so much want to go to university. I don't have supportive family to do that. I have no money to do that, but I want to go to university. And I stand in awe what God would provide for that journey in my life because they taught me how to trust. My life was on the hinge of a future, wondering where it will go, and you may be living on the hinge of a future as well. Nehemiah is 
living on the hinge of his own future. And so is Israel at this time and place. And we're gonna learn from Nehemiah how we trust God in the middle of living our lives on the hinge of a future when sometimes it's so very uncertain. I came across this quote from Admiral James Stavridis, and I just loved it. It says, leadership is like a big door that swings on the small hinge of character. Leadership is like this big door that swings on the small hinge of character. The character always leads. Did you get that? Character always leads one way or another. And so we're going to take Nehemiah each week and we're going to, from the chapters that we look at, find one character quality. We're going to elevate that character quality as a hinge that swings big doors for your life and your leadership that you will find helpful. And I'm grateful for that opportunity to do it. Today we're gonna to jump into Nehemiah chapter one and the character quality is dependence. Specifically, dependence on God through prayer. And it's that prayer that we're gonna learn so much from Nehemiah at the beginning of the year which seems like a fitting message because here's the reality. God blesses and he backs that which is dependent upon him for success. He blesses and he backs that which is dependent upon him for success. And Nehemiah is dependent on God for success. If we want to see any life transformation in our life, it starts with prayer. And so the message today that I want to bring home to you from chapter one of Nehemiah is that you have to do more than pray, but don't do anything until you pray. Did the jumping bring an emphasis enough? For you? I don't jump a lot. I have a new knee. I'm just saying you have to do more than pray, but don't do anything until you pray. And that's what he teaches us as we open ourselves on the hinge to what God has for us in 2023 and what he has for the people of Israel, our own communities and nation as well. I find it interesting that Nehemiah was this guy who is an active guy. I mean, you've heard me say this, there are three kinds of people. There are those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who stand around trying to figure out what, what's happening. He's a guy who makes things happen, but before he becomes a man of action, He's a man of God who prays. And his prayers become, I'm telling you, the trigger for life transformation in his life and for the nation of Israel to the end that the walls that are destroyed around Jerusalem will be built in 52 days. To the end that spiritually dead people come alive. There's a spiritual revival. I'm praying for that for our own community as well. And to the end that people who've been exiled are coming to their homeland back into Israel. It's extraordinary what takes place. And so I want us to step into just a little bit of a historical context. I don't have the time in the message to unpack it greatly, but we have a companion guide of Nehemiah to walk you from here all the way up to Easter. It's so good. It gives rich context and background, but also a rich application from each chapter and character qualities we look at in a beautiful prayer that will guide your heart toward transformation. So get that either online, you can download it, or you can pick it up as a hard copy here. Um, but let me give at least a, a top view of what's taking place. About 600 years before Christ, the Babylonians are gonna step in because something's happened. It's a disaster for the people of God. They stop loving God. I don't know why this happens. Why do we stop loving God? They stopped loving God and they stopped treating each other with respect and justice. And in fact, they start to worship gods of other peoples and other cultures. And they find themselves in a place that they act unjustly even to their own neighbors. And they adopt the very cultural 
norms that are different than God's expectations from his word, and that's the journey they're on. And the consequence of it is not a good consequence because the Babylonian Empire is spreading quickly. They are strong and they're powerful, and they come in and they siege Jerusalem. They destroy the city walls, they destroy the homes, and they destroy and burn down the temple as well. They're without a temple. And they create a deportation of God's people into various parts of the Babylonian Empire. And the first wave of that deportation of exiles are the elite, the royal, the influential leaders, because if the leaders are gone, people don't know who to follow. So that's the first wave. And then there'll be a second wave and a third wave that comes along the way. But because there was so much pride in Babylon, the Persians eventually, 50 years later, come in and they take over the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus is the king. He's a gracious king. And in fact, I think he's being directed by God, though he doesn't worship the God of Israel. And he does something amazing. He allows people who've been taken captive, exiled around to be able to return to their homelands, including Jewish people. So Zerubbabel, Ezra make their way and come into um, Jerusalem with a remnant, not big enough to restore the city by any means. It's still a mess, it's still destroyed, but they rebuild the temple. Fast forward, 445 BC. Now we come to Nehemiah in his story. And I wanna put up a map to give you some context here. But if you go to the far side, you will find that there is Susa there. Susa is in the Persian Empire, and this is where Nehemiah lives. His ancestors were exiled under the Babylonian Empire. And we find if you're there on that, that far right in Susa that here's Nehemiah, he's 40 years of age. Let me just tell you, he's got a good life. He's adapted to the Persian way of life, but he still loves God. He's still rooted in his faith. But he's comfortable. He's got the best job in the world. He is a professional wine tester. I mean, how many of you would just love to have that job? And it's a position of trust because he drinks everything before the king drinks. He is the cupbearer to the king. He is very influential and he is trustworthy. He's comfortable with his life. Go far to the left and you find Jerusalem and you'll see there with the, the route that Nehemiah will take, it's about a thousand miles, nearly a thousand miles from Susa to Jerusalem. And it's a disaster, but he, this, is, this comes into the storyline. He has never been to Jerusalem. He's only known the comfortable life that is his in Susa. And in Jerusalem, his brother is living along with some of the remnant exiles. And his brother makes that trek all the way to Susa and he, he sends some news to Nehemiah. You could say they have a coffee break and they sit down and talk and he learns the bad news. And this is what Nehemiah um, tells us beginning in verse three. If we could pull that up in the journey. There we go. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Look what he says. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates I, um, have been burned with fire. So it's, it's the destruction that you find there. And we find in the middle of that that there is this concern. Nehemiah is devastated. He's on this history, um, hinge of history, and he's wondering about what's ahead. And he knows that there are challenges that are before him, problems to be solved, decisions to be made, but maybe opportunities to be seized. And so he he goes, how do I do this? And he enters into this place, this posture of prayer. And it is so extraordinary. Honestly, I promise you, if you adopt the posture of prayer that we're gonna learn in Nehemiah, you will find your life enriched in great measure. He gives five postures.
answers a prayer. And the first is a prayer of concern. Pray with concern. That is to pray with um, importance. What is most important in your life? Do you have urgency around it? Do you have passion around it? How many of you tuned into the Monday night football game this past week? Yeah, when, when the, 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 the player, the DeMar Hamlin, um, found himself in cardiac arrest and he comes and crashes and he's, he's fighting for his life. They're resuscitating him. Carrie and I were watching and honestly, it was the eeriest thing I've ever seen in watching a sporting uh, uh, game or uh, competition like that. And you could just see everybody's agitated. They're, they're unsettled. The coaches and the players and the players are just distraught. There's tears, there's emotion. They don't know what to do because they're helpless. And then if you, if you paid attention to it, it was amazing to watch what happened on both sides of the Bengals and the Bills came the team players and they surrounded DeMar and the, at first standing, but then they got on bended knee and they began to pray. Yes. And they were praying with urgency. They were praying with passion because they didn't know what else to do. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Take a look here at what he says. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It's not a casual prayer. It's a prayer of great urgency. And I say this because the reality is sometimes we pray so casual. It just seems so much of our journey has become casual, but we need to raise the bar of urgency and passion for the things that are most important for our life, as Nehemiah did. I'd like to say there are really two kinds of prayers. There is a meaningful situational kind of prayer, and these are the prayers we pray more often. They're arrow prayers. They're prayers that are in a moment. They're prayers that are here and there. We just, Lord, help us here. They're good prayers. All prayers are good prayers. We offer them here and there, but they tend to be short-lived, many of them. And then there's mighty prevailing prayer. And mighty prevailing prayer is an ongoing prayer. It's a prayer when you're having to wait on God because things aren't right in your life or an opportunity hasn't opened up and you're waiting for it to open up and so you pray and you pray and you pray. And sometimes you see this even in our conversations with a best of friend or a spouse per se where you say, you know, let's talk. And you talk, you sit down, it's this or that on this given day. But then sometimes you say to each other, let's talk. It's a different tone. And you talk, but the day isn't sufficient. And you talk more and talk again and talk again. And it might be out of a concern, something important. A friend who is in trouble, dealing with chronic pain. A child who has a significant need. Would you agree that children put you on your knees more than any other person? <laughs> they just do. If you're a parent, man, kids put you on your knees. And you find yourself praying, not just for a day, not just for a moment, but for seasons. Mighty prevailing prayer is a prayer for seasons. And I want you to note here, if I can put the text back up, up again, please, is that he, he prays here for some days. We learn in the text later on that it is for, for four months. It's days that turn into months. The, the hinge is swinging with uncertainty. He's not sure best time when to act, when to move forward. He's praying before God and he mourns. And I think this is part of our call. He mourns, he fasts, he prays. He mourns, he fasts, he prays. Is do we mourn the things that are most important to bring our full selves to the Lord and say, oh God, help us. He mourns the fact that his people have turned their back against him. He mourns his own sin. He mourns that things aren't right, but especially he mourns that God's reputation is not good. And this is the God who created all of us. 
And therefore, he has concern for the name of God and his reputation in that hinge of history. And that prayer will make all the difference. It's a prayer of concern. It's not just a prayer of concern that he starts with. It's a prayer of conviction. And that is simply to base your prayers on the character of who God is. When you pray, you pray who God is. Lord, answer my prayer on the basis of who you are. Look what he does here. This is amazing. All the uh, series of qualities of God that he calls out. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven. Who else taught us to address God of heaven? Jesus said, when he taught us to pray, our Lord, who art in heaven, where power resides. He is our creator God, the great and awesome God. I love this because, you know, Nehemiah is saying that life is hard, but God, you are good. He's claiming the character of God, and your goodness is greater than life's hardship. You are great and awesome. And we thought that word awesome was created by teenagers. It was not. <laughs> you know, we just are so quick to say, that is an awesome shirt that you're wearing today. That is an awesome win that your team had. And we trivialize language. We make it small. You've heard me say this before. Hold and reserve the word awesome for God. Because God is the one who is awesome, right? And then he continues with this. Who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. There's a relational integrity with God. He says yes, and he means yes, and he follows through with yes. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. God, you, I know this about you. You have eyes that see. You are not blind to what's happening right now. You have ears that hear. You hear the request that he's claiming, God, I know you hear me right now. And he's claiming the very character of God. And I think that's a beautiful thing for us to do, to claim the character of God in our life and our journey. Because we forget the character of God sometimes until something happens and it goes beyond anything that we can bring to the table. We say, God, show up because we need you because only you can do this. And that happens for us personally. And Carrie gave me at Christmas time a book um, for Christmas and it's by John Meacham, one of America's great historians. It's a biography of, of President Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln. And so I'm well into it. I'm, man, I've been taken back a bit shocked by what I'm learning because I've had these ideas of who Abraham Lincoln is because of the narratives we have. I've been shocked to learn that here, I've always thought of him as a, a deep follower of Jesus Christ and follower of God. He did believe in God, but he was more of a Gnostic. He, he believed that there was a God who created all things, but he didn't intervene in the welfare of human, humankind. He didn't believe that the Bible was authoritative for life, faith, and practice in his 20s. He didn't believe that Jesus was son of God. He thought he was a great man, a great ethical teacher. This is Abraham Lincoln. I'm like a little disturbed as I'm reading this. And, and he wrote an essay about this. And some of the people who were encouraging him to seek election ripped the essay up and said to him that you'll never be elected because in our country at that time, faith and politics was so intertwined, you needed to have a view of God. Not that anything has changed. I'm not saying anything about it, I'm just saying it hasn't changed a whole lot. And yet, as I'm reading through the book, oh, there's a change in his posture. Because the Civil War is underway. Our nation is at the point of exploding, and this is what he writes. I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of those around me seemed insufficient for the day. 
What is he doing? He's calling out the character of God, a wisdom that goes beyond anything that we might have today. Proclaim God's character. And then he continues, and that is to confess that we're in this place of not simply praying with concern and praying with conviction, but pray with confession. Not a confession for just your personal life, but also your collective community. We elevate ourselves, but God elevates um, the community at large in our prayers. And and he's giving this call for us to um, answer prayers because of the reality of where we are as a community not just where we are individually. And he used personal pronouns that are just extraordinary that call this up, which is interesting. I remind you, he's never been to Jerusalem. Never been there. He's in Susa, living a good life. And I want you to notice the personal pronouns, I and we, and how he uses them. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Notice there's one I, there's three we's. And I think it's just a reminder to us that we belong and are created in the image of God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit in community, created community, that we would be one together. And this hits in a personal way for us and a collective way. A personal way in my own personal journey as I was growing in my faith in my early 20s, I came across this reality of my life. I had a high school psych teacher who said something that just uh, was beyond comprehension to me, but he he put up statistics, and they're, they're facts, right? But it says, if you come from a divorce home, the chances of you walking through a divorce were exponentially high. If you come from a home of alcoholism, and I'm an ACA, adult child of an alcoholic, then your chances of becoming an alcoholic are exponentially high. If you come from a home where infidelity was part of your journey, I come from that given line, that your chances of entering into infidelity in marriage would be exponentially high. I'm 18 years of age and I'm feeling like my life is scripted before I've even had a chance to get out of the door of my, my parents' home. And I come to faith, I'm offering, I'm taking the hand off the steering wheel of my life and say, oh God, protect me from these arenas. This what generational sin. I learned for the first time that the Bible speaks about generational sin that there's a ripple effect that creates havocs in family systems from sins of the past. And so I said, Lord, I'm not gonna blame, I'm not gonna accuse, um, but I am gonna own some responsibility because I wanna be one with my family and I offered the dysfunction of my family at the foot of the cross, said, oh God, help us, break the generational sin. And can I tell you, there's been healing. So much beautiful healing in my family. If you come from the ripple effect of ancestors and you still see the consequences, it's a good thing to offer that before the Lord. And even in our present day community, when I think we've taken a posture as a church that racial justice and healing will be part of our journey. Biblical justice in the racial community that leads to healing is part of our journey. We're doing that. But many people have said to me, Joel, I wasn't there. I didn't do that but I can't help but wonder if we as a nation didn't have the proper confession at the time when we were owning the error of our ways and the ripple effect continues. What happens if we come together in a spirit of oneness? Pray that will be a good thing for us as a church and that we can join together to that given end. So we pray with confession. And then fourth, we pray with this confidence. And confidence specifically in what? It's confidence in the promises of God. In fact, you find that this confidence is a call for us to remind God 
of his promises and then claim the promises that he made are for you in your life. That's what Nehemiah does. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God is into his name, into his glory, into his beauty, and when we align with it, he's bringing them back. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed, whom your great strength and your mighty hand These are your people, God. He's claiming the promises. You said that if we turn our face toward you, you would bring us back. That you are the one who redeems us. It's your mighty strength that moves us in this given direction. So God, we're your people. You promised God. You you say that, you know. You promised God. Have you ever gone to God and remind him of something that he's promised you in your life? I mean, what a cool concept that is. God, you promised this. And when you do that, amazing things happen. Does God need to be reminded? No. Does God forget his promises? No. So why do we do it? It's for us. It's for us to remember who this God is, that he's the one who redeems us and gives us his strength. It reminds us to stay aligned with him because it's so easy for our heart to drift, for us to become derailed, for us to stop loving God as a priority and loving each other. But when we hold him to his promises, man, we become a tighter bond. There's a bond of affection that's amazing. And by the way, kids learn this too. Did you notice? This is through social research. At age three, kids begin to learn what a promise means and that they are meant to be kept. At age three, they start getting your face about it. And I, I was reminded of this just recently because we had all three grandkids over and uh, it was a beautiful thing to have them come over. But, we, you know, we had just over-promised the day. And we do this thing called, many of you know, pajama runs when the kids are in bed and they're all tucked in and we yell, pajama run! And they come running down in their pajamas. We get in the car and we go to Dairy Queen. But Dairy Queen was now closed. <laughs> Disappointment, because we had said, pajama run, yep. A little bit of a trust chipped away, yeah, no doubt about it. (laughs) I'm just saying, God is a promise keeper, not just a promise maker, and he's never a promise breaker, and we are. And that's our trouble. So we come to him, and we claim his promises. And then finally, I gotta wrap it up here, pray with commitment. And pray with commitment specifically with a specific request that to get a specific answer, give a specific request. Jesus taught us to pray. You have not because you ask not. So ask, and that's what Nehemiah does. Let me pull it up. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Stop, pause. Give your servant success. Stop, pause today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And we find that Nehemiah is um, specific in purpose to revere your name. We exist to honor God, friends. Start your prayer saying, Lord, I want to honor you. Be specific. And give your servant success. He's got to go to the king. You don't tell the king, hey, thinking about a trip, thousand miles away, be back in a few months. Good with that? No. He's not good with that. And his life is at risk. Grant success today. And so Nehemiah moves in that given direction. He's on the hinge of his life. As Israel is on the hinge, 
And God loves to answer prayers when you pray with concern, passion, when you pray with conviction, calling out his very character qualities, when you pray with confession, yes, for yourself, but in community, when you pray with confidence related to his promises, when you pray with commitment, specificity related to what you're asking for. So may we do that in this next year. We need to do more than pray, but let us not do anything until we pray. That is our call. Let me wrap up. I've got just one minute to do this, minute and a half to do this, but I want to share just briefly. I got a call last March from Sammy Wagnoni, one of our partner ministries evangelists who travels the world as a member here at Westwood. He had a dream, and he woke up from the dream, and he sensed the Lord was saying, you need to tell Joel this dream. He calls. He says, I got to tell you this dream that I had last night. I'm just a little like, oh, I'm not so sure. I get a lot of dreams coming my way. And I said, okay. Let's meet together. And he tells this dream that he had that he felt strongly that he needed to tell me. He and Suzanne were making their way to Westwood Chan campus and they were um, coming on a Saturday morning. And as he approached to come into the entrance on our Chan campus, there were people, not in cars, but standing with kids in a line on 41 and 5, all the way on 78th Street, into our entrance, up to our front door, into our lobby, into our common area, into our worship center, through this door, down the children's area, down the lower level, through that lot on the fitness side, we call it the fitness lot on the other side, all the way out to 41 again. Thousands of people. And I said, what were they coming for? He said, they didn't come for a worship service. What were they coming for? For prayer. He said, we had put an ad or communicated to the larger community that if you have a need for prayer in your life for anything, come to our campus Saturday morning. We'll be here to pray with you and for you. And thousands came. I got goosebumps. It said, prayer is our way forward, number one. Number two, get your eyes off of yourself. We've had three years of being absorbed around, how are we gonna get through this? And get your eyes on the heart of God and his eyes on those who have yet to know him and offer healing and help and hope to them, which means we are elevating prayer. We started as a staff last fall. Throughout the course of the year, you're gonna see all kinds of things sprinkled in for prayer, and we're excited about this year, that we are gonna grow in confidence at the throne of grace because we're gonna receive mercy there, and we're gonna find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen? I need to be done, so stand, please. I want to keep going with you, but stand and let's pray together. Father God, thank you. May 2023 be a year where we accelerate here, near, and far the mission you gave to us, but with our eyes fixed on those who know you not. And may at the end of this year, in December, might we have grown in confidence to the end that the outcomes in our life would only put us on bended knee where we would say, oh, thank you, God, for leading us and guiding us today and always. We praise you in Jesus' name.